Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Funds, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafunds.com to join the community. Today is April the 25th in 2023, and my guest is John Cumbers. John is a molecular biologist and the founder and CEO of SynthBioBeta, which promotes synthetic biology to build a more sustainable universe. Today, we're going to learn about synthetic biology, the promise of this set of technologies and scientific insights to engineer the built world around us using organic materials. We'll talk about where the industry is today, where it could be, where it's heading, what's holding it back, and how we can accelerate it. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you for having me. What's your background and how did you end up doing what you do? I decided about 25 years ago that I wanted to live forever and I wanted to go into space. Actually, it was the other way around. I decided I wanted to go into space and I decided that it was a really long distant plan and therefore it would be really good to be able to live forever in order to see humanity flourishing in the solar system and the universe beyond. So I switched from computer science into biology at that time. I, I switched my degree from software engineering, my undergrad into a master's in bioinformatics. And then I did a PhD in molecular biology. I then ended up going to work at NASA. NASA Ames in Silicon Valley for seven years working in the synthetic biology program. And then I started SynBioBeta because after living in Silicon Valley, the startup ecosystem rubs off on you. Everybody's raising money. Everybody's doing a startup. And so I decided to bring together all of my friends who are in the early stage synthetic biology startup ecosystem. And in 2012, we did the very first SynBioBeta conference. And for the last 11 years, it's just grown and multiplied. And we actually have the next conference coming up in 30 days. We have about 2,000 people going to be showing up at the Oakland Marriott and a lot of big speakers in the world of reading, writing, and editing of DNA. And all of this company, this ecosystem that has formed around synthetic biology and the process of making biology easier to engineer. What sort of delineates the field of synthetic biology? What makes it different from you know, other kinds of biotechnology as a whole sector, for example? The thing that differentiates it is this community of people that are on this mission to make biology easier to engineer. Synthetic biology is not necessarily about what you're doing, but it's about the way that you're doing it. So the reason I call it a movement is because it's a mindset of people who come into the world of biology 
And they look at how we engineer biology right now or how we did engineer biology over the last 20 years. And they didn't really see an engineering discipline. What they saw was a kludged together set of tools and technologies to make particular things, but each project, each molecule that wanted to be made, each drug that wanted to be made was a bespoke project that cost millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars and maybe a decade to get a product out to market. And so there's a precedent in other engineering fields where engineers come in and they take and they operationalize what's going on and they turn it into an engineering discipline. They develop tools, they develop abstraction systems, they develop standardization around what's happening and they develop methods to make what you're doing faster, better, and cheaper. And that hadn't really happened in genetic engineering or bioengineering or metabolic engineering. And so that's what synthetic biology created was a new name for all of the people who cared about making biology easier to engineer. It gave them a banner to gather around and a community to coalesce around. And that's what has happened over the last 20 years. And when you do that and you see a community of people gathering around, much like the network states community or the charter cities community, um, at the fringes of that, you get investors interested because they see culture forming. They see something new happening and they see potential for, for growth and for business. So we have a lot of investors coming into the field of synthetic biology. Uh, last year, there was $10 billion invested. The year before that, there was $18 billion invested. The year before that, there was about another $10 billion. Um, so there's just been a ton of money coming into the field. A handful of companies have IPO'd and you're starting to see a, a new industry emerge, the synthetic biology industry, which maybe in a few years time, the name will disappear and it will go back to biotechnology because that's the way these, these communities and these, these, uh, these memes come and go. But right now it's a very useful one and it's gathering a lot of steam, uh, a lot of investors, a lot of startups, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of technologies and tools, and ultimately a lot of products, which we're starting to see come out onto the market now. Can you give a couple of examples of successful companies in the field and what they do and what their business models are like? Yeah, happy to. One that I think you're familiar with is Lanza Tech, because um, as you know, we were at an event together. We, we hosted a blockchain meets bio event in Suzalu in Montenegro just at the beginning of this month. And one of our speakers was Jennifer Holmgren. And Jennifer is the CEO of Lanza Tech. And Lanza Tech is a very innovative company that takes um, CO2 from steel mills and bubbles it through these bioreactors, grows organisms on that CO2, and out pops the other end valuable chemicals and materials. And in this case, what popped out was an, a jacket that was made by Adidas. And it's this uh, uh, polyethylene uh, uh, product, which comes out, which can be made. It's like a bio nylon. It's a bio-based version of nylon. Instead of coming from fossil fuels, it's coming from waste gas from a, from a steel mill. So that's one example of um, a product that built with biology. And in this case, built with organisms from, uh, that are feeding on, on waste from a CO2 mill. Great. And I also remember others at the conference, Ginkgo Bioworks, 
Can you talk a bit more about what they do? Because I think they're the biggest one in the field, right? They are, yeah. So Ginkgo is um, is valued at a couple of billion dollars. They IPO'd um, or, or did a SPAC a couple of years ago. And the CEO from that company spoke, Jason Kelly. And Ginkgo is an interesting company because they're like the AWS of, of biology. So they don't make specific products, but instead they can, they, they've built a foundry where you can come and you can come to them and say, I want a product that's going to produce a new food product. It's going to be a new flavor ingredient to go into food that's going to be sweet, a sweet protein that isn't high in calories. And Ginkgo will work with you to produce a organism, to do the engineering of the DNA inside the organism and to spit out a molecule that comes, that's, that's the focus of, of what you're looking for. So um, Ginkgo is a, is a foundry and a platform and you could come to them with a problem in materials. You could come to them with a problem in food, in chemicals, in environmental applications. They have a, a few spin-outs. One of them is called Alonia, which is doing uh, wastewater purification, so applications in that. Um, another one is called Motif Foodworks, and Motif is making uh, food ingredients. And they're spinning out another one uh, coming soon on materials. So um, there's a lot of active companies in the space a lot of them are using the services of ginkgo and a lot of them are then going and producing companies and products that sit on top of that yeah the conference was really epic just to mention a couple of my impressions from that you really nailed down the aesthetic of synthetic biology right so it has this kind of solar punk vibe right with sort of engineering sort of the organic world kind of to grow around us and to even like build cities on top, right? And to really have a built environment that's built or engineered by biology. So that was really amazing to see. And that really has the ingredients to form kind of a movement and make people exciting about it. Certainly made me very excited. There's also overlaps with the decentralized science community, which I appreciate because I also seen overlap in my work and their work. So Vita Dao, for example, in longevity had Sebastian Brunemeyer on. And in synthetic biology, that's Valley DAO, which is basically the beta DAO for synthetic biology. So also funding early stage science and R&D and bringing it to commercial applications. Or also Paul Kohas from Molecule was there, who's sort of bringing IP NFTs and bringing new ways basically of um, designing the industry and how it incepts new products from the science to commercial applications. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of decentralized science. That's what's brought me kind of into this community. We have a whole session and a whole track on decentralized science. I was at the DSI Boston meeting. I was at the DSI London meeting. Um, and I see that as the future of all science, actually. Um, the, the connection between what's happening at the funding level with what's happening at the research level what's happening at the publication level and then what's happening at the commercialization and spin out level. Um, it's been broken. There's never been a good system for it. And so I'm very excited about the connection between all of these things. And I think it's going to see this beautiful flourishing both in the science, but also in the engineering and in the arts, how all of these things connect together for producing beautiful economies and beautiful cities and beautiful states. Um, and you talked about biology and the, the solar punk future, which um, for those, I'm, I'm 
for those who aren't familiar, you know, we've had uh, cyberpunk. The next iteration is solarpunk, looking at, uh, at uh, how we can create these flourishing ecosystems and using the tools of biotechnology and, and, and sustainability. So I think the solarpunk vision is beautiful. Why biology is a key part of that is because biology is the means of production. If you can own the means of production, then you have complete uh, autonomy and freedom. Um, and so that's why above all other tools and technologies, biology is one that's going to be able to, we're going to be able to use to produce the cities of tomorrow, to grow our food, to make materials, to uh, make the, make, make drugs that we need to, to keep ourselves healthy. So I think there's, um, a lot of potential for biology to solve all of the problems that we have. Um, if only we could harness it and if only we can engineer it and, um, and that's what the whole field is about, is about making biology, making cells that you design, you build and you test. How do we make that process easier so that we can create myriad of applications? Can you talk a bit more about sort of the scientific breakthroughs that underpin it? And you don't have to give a short answer, so feel free to take a bit more time. We had like one of the most eminent scientists in the industry, Drew Andy, on a panel in Zuzalu. He spoke a long conversation with Vitalik Buterin. So what is it? Where has the field advanced in ways that we're now on the cusp of using organic materials to engineer the world around us? Yeah, there are a few different levels of the Synbio stack, as we like to talk about the companies in the industry. At the bottom of the stack, you have reading, writing, and editing of DNA. And at the top of the stack, you have the application layer where you have all the companies that are making different things. And then in the middle, you have tools and technologies, and you have platforms. Uh, you have automation platforms. Um, and then in between that and the application layer, you have organism engineering uh, platforms. So you have various different tools and technologies that have been developed over the years that you can fit under the umbrella of synthetic biology. The structure of DNA, actually today is DNA day. It's, we're celebrating the 70th anniversary since the structure of DNA was discovered. And uh, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the sequencing of the human genome at the same time. So it's a pretty big uh, celebration today. And it wasn't until the 1970s that scientists discovered how to read DNA and then also how to write DNA. So um, for those of your audience who aren't in biotechnology, the core operating system of a cell is the genome, which is all of the A's, C's, T's and G's, all of these letters. And these letters form a chemical code. And these letters form a chemical code in a long, in a long strand. Uh, a, a gene or a, a piece of DNA has a, has a pairing complement, a double strand, uh, the helix. And on that piece of DNA are genes. And genes are just segments of the DNA that can be, that can be read. And the DNA that can be read perform some particular function or make some particular protein and the proteins or the enzymes are the, the, the tool, the, the, the things that make or break other chemical bonds and perform all of the functions, um, of biology that, that we know of or that we think we know of right now. Um, so at its core, synthetic biology is about these fundamental technologies of reading the DNA sequencing, writing the DNA synthesis and editing the DNA. 
And uh, that's the latest one, which since 2012, since the discovery of CRISPR, um, we've seen a flourishing of the ability to edit the DNA. And that's a big deal because until that point, you had to take apart the DNA, take apart the cell, take the DNA out of it, do whatever you wanted to do on it, and then put the DNA back into the organism. Um, and that was a really slow, arduous process. Now with tools like CRISPR and before that tools like Talons, um, you're able to actually edit the cells, edit the DNA inside of the cells in vivo, in, in real time. Um, and that's a, been a big deal and that continues to be a big deal. And there are tools like uh, base editing, which make it even better. You can target in on a specific base pet and say, I want to change that C to a, to a T or that A to a G. Um, or whatever you want to change. So at its, at its core, there are these three fundamental technologies. Then building on top of that, you have a whole suite of automation tools, tools like automatic pipetting of, of robots. You have tools like high throughput mass spec, so you can analyze the products of the, of the cell. You have tools for manipulating droplets of, of liquid and, and pairing different cells together on a, on a microscopic plate. So you have all of these tools that have come about. And again, this all fits under synthetic biology because it's all trying to make biology easier to engineer. And what do all these tools enable? Well, they enable you to then not just make a single product, as I said, one that might take 10 years and tens of millions of dollars, but to now create a platform technology. So you're seeing a lot of companies out there that are creating technologies that can spit out various different molecules. Um, there are companies like Pivot Bio that's producing crops that are microbes that can fix their own nitrogen around the, the root nodules of crops. You're seeing Biomason that we saw in Zuzel that can produce concrete using microbes so it can fix concrete. Actually, 30% of the world's copper is extracted using microbes right now, which is quite quite phenomenal. I'm sure there's some microbes in there's some copper production going on in Honduras where you're based right now. There are companies like uh, Modern Meadow that's producing materials, companies like Upside Foods that are producing meat without the cow. There are companies that are producing flavors and fragrances and, and, and cosmetic ingredients like Amaris. So there's just a ton of companies that have now built these platforms on top of all those tools and technologies that can then spit out various different products for various different application areas. What's the um, way to break into SynthBio for any aspiring entrepreneur? Is the culture more of a, hey, you need to do a PhD to get anything done in the field? Or, hey, there's DIY ways to start at home, to experiment. And, you know, there's more of a Silicon Valley tech culture where it's more about your skills than about your credentials. And how do you, would you advise someone to, to start? We're definitely shifting away from the credentialed PhD model towards the Silicon Valley and more towards the experienced model. But if you look at the companies right now, many of the founders will still have a PhD. They'll still have some sort of technical degree. And mostly that's because their startup is based on a technology that has spun out of a university. One thing that I do 
to recommend your listeners to get into synthetic biology is to check out iGEM competition. iGEM stands for International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition. And it's a way to welcome people into the synthetic biology community. If you're familiar with FIRST Robotics, it's an international robotics competition. And FIRST Robotics um, allows different teams to compete with each other for, for prizes. I think there are high school teams, undergraduate teams. Um, but uh, synthetic biology has its own version. It's called iGEM and it's for genetic engineered machines. And so each year, I think over 5,000 students gather for this jamboree. It's held in Paris, used to be held in Boston. And there's a competition where people show and tell their different products that they've made using biology. And so I recommend checking that out. And, um, if you're, if you're in a high, high school or if you're in university, you can enter a team. I think there's also public labs that can join as well, like community labs. And that's a good segue into talking about what you can do if you're not inside an institution. There are now biomaker labs all around the world that you can join. There's one here, a couple here, one in Oakland, one in Sunnyvale. Sunnyvale is called BioCurious. There's one in New York. Um, I think there's one in Singapore, certainly one in Paris. They're all, all around the world, these communities are popping up of people who want to do DIY bio. They want to do bio in a community lab. Um, and you can go, you can take classes, you can do courses. And there are a couple of companies that have spun out from these community labs. Opentrons, which is valued now at over a billion dollars, was invested in by Coastal Ventures, this low-cost automation tool for biology um, spun out of one of these community labs. So there's a lot of opportunity for you to, for you to get involved. I will also plug our conference coming up next month in Oakland. Um, the day before the conference, we have a one-day introduction to synthetic biology course that's taking place. Um, we also have an introduction to DSI course that afternoon. So there's a lot of activities that are taking place um, to get people excited and interested in biology and a lot of opportunity and, and gateways for you to come into our community. Fantastic. What are common misconceptions about synthetic biology? And I'm just naming a few that might come to mind for some people. So negative associations could be something like synthetic drugs. Many people also don't like GMOs, genetically modified organisms, or they think of, oh, we're playing God, we're meddling with nature and something like that. Yeah, I think the, the playing God one, um, if you look at what's happening outside all the time, or you look at Gregor Mendel, who was a, a, a clearly a man of God, um, well, uh, should he have bred those white peas and those pink peas to create, uh, red peas to create the pink peas. Um, probably not if you believe that, you know, he was, he was meddling with God because that maverick didn't have a clue what he was doing when he was mixing the DNA of those two, of those two plants. But quite beautifully, um, he figured out the, um, the core of what we now call Mendelian genetics, uh, which is how different plants breed and cross with each other. There's very little difference between what he was doing with what a modern genetic engineer does, which is to, um, apart from that, a modern genetic engineer knows exactly what they're doing to the, to the DNA. Gregor Mendel was just kind of mixing things up and doing experiments and trying to figure out what was going on inside. And he had no idea about the substrate. He had no idea about the DNA. He was just looking at the output, whether the, whether the peas were, were pink or white or red. So now fast forward and well, 
look at an heirloom tomato that you might find in the farmer's market. If you are worried about GMOs, generally the, the fear that has been created around GMOs is that we don't know what's going on. We don't know the unintended consequences. We don't know the unintended health effects of mixing up uh, DNA. Um, but if you look at an heirloom tomato, there's a lot of mixed up DNA in there and we've got no idea what's going on. So you could argue that with biotechnology, we actually know a lot more about the DNA of, of the product that we're engineering than about an heirloom tomato of which we know nothing about the, the genetics of it, unless, we, unless we've sequenced it. So I think we know more about GMOs. We know more about uh, plants and organisms that have been engineered than we do about their natural varieties. And we also know from sequencing everything out there in the environment, how promiscuous nature is, um, horizontal gene transfer, this process of a gene transferring from one organism to another is rife everywhere we look. If you sequence my genome, you're going to find, um, you're going to find genes in there from ancient, ancient plants. You're going to find genes in there from, from honeybees. You're going to find genes in there from bacteria. Um, you find this gamish of, of everything that's, uh, that's gone on genetically in the past four and a half billion years. And, and that is the beauty of nature. Just like, um, when, when a human has a child, um, and you choose who you're going to have a child with, or you have no idea what the outcome of that experiment's going to be until the baby is born. And until, you know, 20 years later, when you see this, this baby now as an adult. So I think understanding where we've come from is going to be very useful in understanding where we're going and the tools that we have now to solve some of these problems, let's say, particularly around healthcare, that there are amazing stories of um, hereditary diseases and people being cured of these hereditary diseases via gene editing. But I think that this argument about GMOs and, and unintended consequences and not knowing what are the consequences of our actions, I think that we've seen that the benefit that these tools and technologies can provide outweigh the, uh, the risk and outweigh the negative effects of them. And I think this is an amazing future that we can build both in, in a, for a healthy, a healthy human, a healthy planet and a healthy environment. Yeah. It seems to me that that's very common to many new technologies that they're, you know, in normie land, people have some misconceptions about it. You know, we had that with nuclear power to some degree we have with the, had that with the nanotechnology, right? The gray goo. To some degree, we have it with longevity, like, oh, this is like a vain quest for immortality or something like that. So I had several episodes on that. And, you know, with synthetic biology, it seems to me also that many people in Normieland think, oh, GMO is bad. Do you think that has sort of a tend to public perception? Does it have like a material effect on the progress of the industry? It does. I think there's a lot of fear around public perception in the industry. If I'm making a if I'm making a new material, uh, a new, a new jacket that's made from a sustainable source like CO2, but it's producing, it's produced in a micro, I'm using the tools of synthetic biology, but nobody really wants to wear a synthetic jacket. People want to wear a natural jacket. If I'm making a new food product and it's an amazing new flavor that nobody's ever tasted before, then I want to put it out onto the shelves of Walmart. Um, nobody wants a synthetic flavor. People want a natural flavor. 
So I think there's a lot of branding and perception um, around the stories that we tell with these products. And as you flip your mind from a technologist who geeks out on the technology to a marketer who now wants to go out and sell this product to a consumer who 99% of consumers couldn't tell you how a gene relates to a protein, then you change your story to suit the, the audience. Um, so I think that's a fear that people in the industry have around the, the stories and, and the storytelling around their products. What does a escape velocity scenario look like for synthetic biology? By that, I mean accelerating usage of it to really build a lot more around us and of it becoming like a trillion dollar industry and in being so widespread in use that we can point at, hey, this is like something we've on the scale of like we've never could have imagined right now. Yeah, so I think that escape velocity looks like the speeding up of the design, build and test cycle for synthetic biology. If you look at the process that we go through for creating an organism right now, it takes many weeks or months to do an experiment and to go through a full design, build and test cycle where you're designing a genome on a computer, you're predicting what it's going to do, you're hitting print and you're receiving the synthetic DNA from a DNA company or you're making it yourself in your lab. Then you're putting it into a cell and then you're looking, you're growing up the cells and then you're looking at what those cells produce and how they produce it, how much of it they produce. So that still takes anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. It used to take many months or even a year to do that. Um, I think escape velocity will be hit when it can, when it can just take a few hours to do one of these experiments, when you can actually see the results of your genetic program in real time or as close to real time as possible. So I think that's where the escape velocity is heading, um, is in speeding up the design build test cycle, because we're at the equivalent stage in bioengineering as we were to software engineering in the 1960s, where you used to write programs on computer card, pieces of card with holes punched in it. And you used to take your cards over to a computer and you used to feed them in and that would be the, the program. And then you'd come back a day later or a week later and pick up your, pick up your cards because they'd have run and you'd get the result of your computer program. My mom actually learned to program COBOL in the 1970s, I think, or maybe the 60s, uh, using that technique. That's where we're at right now with, with biotechnology. And so escape velocity will be hit when you can type in something, hit enter and see the, your program run in real time and be able to debug it in real time. And we're not there yet with biology, but I, I think, you know, certainly over the next 10 years, we're going to see rapid increases in our ability and our speed to do this. Now, I'd love to have a longer conversation about the barriers to adoption. So the thesis of the podcast is, are we looking at sort of the regulatory, political and red tape obstacles that are often holding back fields and sometimes outright destroying the progress that has been made over a long time. So just to form an analogy with longevity biotech, right? So in their case, it's very hard to get centralized science funding because longevity is not recognized as a disease. 
So there's several friction points and valleys of death to even do science and some of these things. And then what's really pernicious, and we had several episodes on this podcast, talking about the FDA and the approval process that is broken, that takes way too long and is way too expensive and is even to some degree corrupt and not getting products on the market, but sort of preventing sort of shorter iteration times for any nascent industry, right? So we can already do computational biology, say on like vaccines, on drugs. So we can very iterate very fast, but then you have to go through a year long process to get it to market, which is something that is basically preventing escape velocity, right? Sort of doing it computationally, doing fast iterations and bring it to the market. So in what ways does that do these insights or does that thesis or do some of these barriers apply to synthetic biology? Which ones would you say are the most important ones? I don't think that the industry in general is being held back by the regulatory environment. The elephant in the room is the, is the biopharma and the healthcare industry. That, that's where all of the money is. That's where a lot of the investment is. A lot of the application area is in, is in biopharma. And within biopharma, sure, it's a, it's a, it's a ball of wax uh, in terms of the industry, the regulation around the industry, the conservativeness around the industry, how slow it moves, how regulated it is. So, but if you look at everything else in the industry around materials or chemicals or environmental applications, a lot of those things are not regulated. So there's a lot of areas where there can be a lot of growth um, for the industry in those areas. Then you've got food, which is, which is somewhat regulated. Um, you've got the, the standards around grass standards generally recognized as safe for a food product. You've got a, a regulatory pathway to check that any new food product you, you're making is not toxic, which they, uh, they, they feed it to rats and check that the rats are, are not, not dying. Um, so you have some regulation in the, in the food and then you have the, for the production, um, you have certain regulations around the production of, of. Uh, genetically engineered products as well, like greenhouses and things like that. So I think the the main regulations are in the are in the biopharma space and in the healthcare side. And I think I think you know better than I do about about those issues, particularly because the ones that are related to longevity are the same as are related to, you know, CAR T therapies or 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 CRISPR human trials or things like that. I think it's the same issues for synthetic biology. I don't think there's anything unique about. Uh, the regulations around what I'm talking about that are different from the ones that you know already about the longevity biotech scene. Well, it's good news. So in you're saying in agriculture and construction and materials, there's relatively low to no barriers, right? So when you have a new product, like a new way to do cement for building materials and stuff like that, there's just nothing stopping you. You can do the science, you can make a product, you can ship it to market and you can iterate on it fast, right? Yeah, mostly because those products are being excreted, like the the cement. There's no living organism in the cement. There's no living living organism in the in the jacket. And then food and ag, there are there are more regulatory requirements. Anything that's going to go and be consumed by a human, you have to make sure it's non toxic. And then anything that's going to go and interact with the environment and could cause some negative effect on the environment, then you have to demonstrate that it's not going to do that. So there's some regulations around ag, there's some around food, a lot around, around anything to do with human health, only in the 
in the chemicals and materials space is uh, are there regulations around environmental release that you're not going to cause any damage to the environment through the process that you're that you're doing yeah i mean with foods i'm thinking of synthetic meat right i mean that is taking a long time to go to market right because the regulatory environment is that isn't that favorable also i've heard from several other podcasts and people in the industry and there's like some jurisdictional arbitrage around places like singapore to do much of it is that something you've you've encountered or is that a misconception yeah that there's definitely um conservativeness around cell-based meat that is using cells stem cells to make animal food products so there's definitely regulation around that but but um and you've got jurisdictions like singapore that are moving ahead faster and seeing a, a regulatory gap where they can work with these cell-based ad companies to get products out there quicker and of course, Singapore has a vested interest in this because Singapore doesn't have any farmland to speak of. Um, so it's really interested in how it can produce these kinds of uh, food products um, and produce them in Singapore. So it's a big opportunity for Singapore. How about countries that also really desperately need food production? I'm thinking of places in like Africa, for example. So how close are we or what are the barriers to using um, food synthetic biology to well feed more people because I so so where are we with that? Yeah, I think for mass production, it's not it's the the economics are not working out yet. If you look at the companies, uh, there's one company called uh, Obillion, um, which is going to be speaking at a conference next month. Patricia Bubner is the CEO of that company, and she's working on a cell based meat and and uh, she's working on high-end you know wagyu beef um to show that uh you know you can get the the economics to work out on the high end you see things like impossible foods that are working on on plant-based alternatives so i think that the you know you've got to get the economics to work out first and then it might be a good solution for sustainable food production in in africa for example um but until that point, it's going to be a replacement for higher end products in the Western world. Yeah. But if but there are other companies, actually, I'm invested in a company called Enough Protein based in the UK, and they are making a, um, if you've heard of the product corn, Q-U-O-R-N, um, they are making a similar kind of product corn uh, using mycelium as the, as the product, uh, as the, as the organism for making the food. And that's a, that's a high quality protein ingredient and those kinds of things, as you see the developing world, uh, get richer and switch over to eating more protein. It's those kinds of things, low cost protein alternatives that I think are going to come in and be able to produce, um, high quality protein at a low cost that is nutritious. Uh, and that might be really good for the, for the developing economies. Yeah, there's this challenge for startups, especially that have ongoing manufacturing or production, right? Because they need to reach a certain scale to have unit economics, right? So there are economies of scale in a field that involves this kind of production manufacturing. So that's why you typically need to start at a higher end of the cost curve, right? So develop higher end products to bring costs down. But it's encouraging to hear that synthetic biology is really attacking sort of the unit economics and the production and the tools and the engineering of many of these materials. 
So that could kind of the escape velocity scenario that I see is that it could enter all sorts of production processes in all sorts of fields, right? That's the scenario. Yeah, and I, I also think one other thing that if we can figure out an efficient way to to condense carbon, then we have wh whoever can figure that out, I think has a, a an amazing new technology. Maybe it's already solved because as soon as we have um, free energy, then we can it, it's very we can condense carbon down. Carbon's about 0.03% of environment, um, of the air. So to condense that down takes a lot of energy, but it can be done. But if you can condense carbon down, you can feed that carbon, as I said earlier, from in, into a, into a reactor and it can produce a, a materials for a jacket. So you can also feed it into a reactor and it can produce food or it can produce, um, any other kind of uh, chemical. Um, so I think um, if you imagine future future civilizations, future network states being carbon independent, um, just as we talk about oil uh, independent, um, you can imagine if they've got their own means to uh, condense carbon and feed it into these processes, carbon's going to be important, water's going to be important, energy is going to be important. If you've got those three things, then the rest are really micronutrients that you need for the production of these things. So I think there's a big opportunity to own the means of production if you can own um, those three um, those three pieces of it. What are any other kind of unsolved big problems in synthetic biology? That's a good question. Well, I think that understanding how cells communicate with each other is still a big unknown. I I think there's something out there which we don't understand in terms of the communication that cells have with each other and uh, within each other and between each other. And although the, the DNA can take us quite far, um, I think that there are other things that we clearly don't understand about biology. Michael Levin was somebody who spoke at the Zuzalu event earlier this month, and he talked to us about the physiome the communications of the metabolites between cells around um, sodium channels and calcium channels and these kind of signals that are sent between different cells to tell things to propagate, to tell hydra to regrow. Um, and I think that there's a lot of activities going on in biology that we don't yet understand, this di biological dark matter that we haven't been able to read or, or, or digest or understand. So I think some of the big unknowns are around communication between cells. And I think that's an area that's going to be very exciting to elucidate as, as things progress. Biological I think, dark matter. I like that, that phrase. Yeah. And, and, and I'm kind of taking that a lot of people say that the genome has a lot of biological dark matter in it, that we don't know what, you know whatever percent of, of the genome does. Um, but I'm also saying there's biological dark matter out there, which is, um, you know what, let's call it biological dark energy. That's it. That's better. You've got the biological dark matter, which is in the genome, and you've got the biological dark energy, which is how the cells communicate with each other. So I think we've got those two things. And then the second thing is the impact. Uh, this isn't really a, a, a 
a, an unsolved problem, but this is a this is an opportunity that I see, which is for um, the tools of AI to impact biological discovery and biological design. We have a whole session on generative AI, a number of different companies doing generative AI, talking about them at the conference coming up next month. We have um, um, Absci, Sean McLeod from, um, uh, Sean McLean, sorry, from Absci is going to be speaking about their zero shot generative AI algorithm for antibody design, uh, Cradle Bio, Profluent, a whole number of companies are doing generative AI for biological design. And they're going to be talking about that. And what it's going to show is that if we can link up the automation tools to gather data about biology and then feed that data back into the generative AI algorithm, um, then we can close these loops on these design build test cycles faster, better, and cheaper. So a lot of what people are now doing in, in generative AI for DALI for images or GPT, chat GPT for text, people are doing the same for biology. They're reading a whole bunch of DNA sequences or protein sequences, they're annotating them and then they're feeding them into an algorithm and saying, make me a new molecule does this with a taste property like this, or make me a new polymer like that, or make me a new um, enzyme that has a binding pocket for this particular metabolite. You're going to be able to say that and the computer will spit back at you. Well, try this one, try that one. Then you can try those in the lab and then you can feed it back to the algorithm. So that's still a slow, laborious process in some companies. Some companies have really got this pipeline figured out very, very fast, but you're going to see a gold rush of people getting into the bioautomation space. Um, because if we can automate that process and if we can annotate and, and show how the genotypes and the phenotypes map and feed, get, gather these large data sets, feed it back to the algorithms, um, then we're going to see some beautiful things that uh, the biology can produce that we had no idea that it could produce just like we're seeing with DALI or ChatGPT. So it's not a problem, but I think it's a, a huge opportunity. Fantastic. You already mentioned network states. We debated that a bit during Zuzalu. We're just going to come back to the New Cities and Network States conference next, next week. What's your, and this is not like a um, definite question where I expect a definite answer, but more like a conversation, but what's your current reading of network states and new cities and how it could apply to SynthesBio? I'm really passionate about the idea of network states because for over 20 years, I've been thinking about new communities and new forms of governance because ultimately I, I'm an explorer. And the reason I got into this business was to go settle the solar system. So I've been thinking about how do we create new cities, new states on Mars, on the moon, um, and how can we prototype them here on earth? Because fundamentally, I think our economies are broken. I think our democracies are broken. I think our communities are broken and I want to innovate on the core of government itself. And I want to innovate on the core of the, what it means to be a, to be a, a human and how we live. And we don't have enough innovation. You know, the, the USA is a startup that's 200 years old and, you know, we're still referring back to documents, um, like they're the Bible, 
um, that we wrote 200 years ago. Now, some, some things in that are, I think are, are great. You know, some things have longevity. Um, but this political system that we have of, of these two poles that we pick and then we stake out our battlegrounds and then we fight. Um, whereas fundamentally what we're fighting over, I believe is the, is the core of the distribution of the wealth from our economy. And so what I love about network states is this connection, this tight coupling between democracy and economy and the choice to participate in the, in that economy or not. And if you don't want to participate, then you go to another network state. You, you define what you care about. You join that network state. You work towards it. You all the there's a sense of ownership of the economy. There's a sense of ownership of the democracy. It's, it's fluid. It can constantly be, uh, updated and, and, um, you know, democracy doesn't need to wait two years or four years. So I think it, it offers this amazing potential for human flourishing. And that's why I am so bullish about at least trying this system um, because I want to see innovation at its core. And I'm pretty politically active. I know my uh, local Congress people regularly give input to, to my local senator. Um, I, I was actually involved in, in, um, in President, Biden, Pres President Biden's uh, bioeconomy uh, policy committee when he was running for office. So I am active in, in politics. I'm interested in, in how things work and improving them. And I'm looking at it from the, so, you know, almost from the inside, I've, I've taken startups to the last three white houses to give input to the government. So it's not like I'm some kind of crazy outsider pointing the finger and trying to tear the system down. I'm looking at it and saying like, this is running at about a 1% potential of what humanity could do. Um, and I'm looking at network states and I'm seeing a, a, a 90% potential of people being engaged in their democracy, engaged in their community, engaged in their economies, having ownership of it. And that's why I'm like, let's give this a try because this, this could be beautiful. This solves all of these problems. I also have an experience of being inside government, seven years at NASA, which was one of the most stifling bureaucracies I could ever imagine. So I see the pain of it. I've seen the pain of it everywhere I've gone. And I also have the experience of coming from a country um, that's, that's seeing um, you know, economic and status decline. I'm, I, I grew up in the United Kingdom and I've, I've lived in a country, the USA, that's been booming over the last, uh, over the last 20 years that I've been here. And I also see very clearly what's going on in, in Asia. I've lived in Singapore. I've lived in, in Malaysia. My wife is Chinese Malaysian. My kids are half Chinese. So I see, I see the potential and I see, you know, China and America and these two, two giant elephants, uh, are fighting with each other. Um, so I, I just have, I think a unique perspective on, on, on global politics, on us politics on on, on European politics. Um, and I have access to a, a network of amazing entrepreneurs who have the tools and technologies to see humanity flourish. So that's why I'm so bullish on network states and want to see them exist and want to, um, want to see innovation at the core of government and democracy itself. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of starting a new startup to challenge existing incumbents, although, um, 
you know, the implication can be from sort of low, right? So you just have your community and you experiment on certain things. And eventually you want to negotiate kind of some exemptions from you or you use existing legal loopholes, right? Sort of to build your community or your moral innovation. But it can also go to kind of a hard fork. Hey, like you don't want to pay like taxes. You want to have a place where we decide on how that system looks like and where we decide how we are regulated, right? So that's the, the kind of the spectrum of where you can go. And I was wondering how or what would be kind of the moral innovation for synthetic biology, right? Because it's clear to me when it comes to longevity, right? So there it's more of a hard fork that we're willing to go because, you know, we're just not going to get anything done if we're not. It's like, how long is it going to take until we convince like the FDA or the federal government to say aging is a disease, right? And even then, you know, centralized science funding is, you know, very ineffectual in many ways. And then the commercialization takes way too long. There is just no reform way that's realistic to, for a timeline to reach escape velocity, right? So the mentality that we have in the longevity space really is, hey, how can we really, you know, fork hard where we at least protect it from the FDA in the first couple of years to get at least a higher amount of drugs into early stage clinical trials and then go to the mainstream system and use the same kind of autonomy for like medical tourism, right? So we have all this stuff that we know works with the best scientists in our field, right? We don't want to have to prove that for 10, 15 years to someone else or to give it to our, to give it to our friends. So we have this other location in Roatan, for example, and build a medical tourism hub. So there's kind of clearly more of a hard fork mentality in finding these looped worlds. What about synthetic biology? Is there some kind of a moral innovation it can be a more soft fork or more of a hard fork or sort of a vision that you can paint sort of kind of creating a high density of scientists or of entrepreneurs in the field, you know, have like a very high density of the right capital or equipment and tools that you need in the same space. Would it could be like a campus where you get everyone together? How, how could that look like? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, maybe we could think about it from a framework of what's missing right now. What are people in need of or where are they finding um, that they're butting up against? you know, regulations or people that can tell them that they can't do things. Um, and I, I, I might've said the GMO regulations in, in, in Europe, I think there were just some new GMO regulations, I think in Kenya, maybe in Uganda about treating gene edited products, um, the same as natural bread products. Cause the whole point, the whole fear mongering around GMOs was that you're introducing foreign DNA into a, into a crop or into a fruit or into a product. And that was the mechanism you used to transfer it in there was a, a bacterial vector or a viral vector. Um, and so a lot of the GMO opponents said, no, 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 you can't do that. That's, that's, that's a line you shouldn't cross is mixing that these two organisms DNA. There wasn't much evidence for, 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 for any negative effects of that. As I said, with horizontal gene transfer, there's been a lot of uh, transferable genes between organisms. Um, there wasn't any evidence for, for any negative effect, but that was the argument against GMOs. Um, well, now with gene editing, where you can just go in and change a letter, there's no difference to doing that than what Gregor Mendel was doing with the, with the peas. 
so before I would have said that the GMO regulations are, are, are an issue. And, and uh, so now in Europe, I think they have classed gene edited crops as GMOs. Um, I think Europe, uh, the UK has, has it's carved out its own exception since it left the European community. Obviously Africa is not part of that. Um, and the US has its own regulatory environment, which is more permissive. So I don't think there's an issue around regulation, um, certainly of, of crops and, and food. In Europe, and, there is, you're saying? In, in Europe, there is, yeah. So that could be an argument that you, that you could see this really weird, and, and you do see that. You see a lot of European entrepreneurs leaving, coming to the US to do, to do yeah. startups. I mean, I like the idea of, you know, especially since we already talked about one of the main challenges is that it's so hard to produce it cost-effective and get good unit economics. But, you know, the moral innovation could be, and let's prove that it can work for the poorest, right? Mm. So that could be, hey, let's do it in Africa somewhere with permissive, with a permissive regulatory environment around GMOs. And then, you know, figure out different ways to produce that extremely cost efficiently as fast as possible. Yeah, I, I like that idea that um, I wonder... So what would be the incentive structure around that? Obviously, because these are greedy entrepreneurs who want to uh, create, a, create a profit for themselves and their investors. Well, that, this is where a DAO comes in, right? Um, and uh, Valley DAO is one of, the one of the companies that spoke at uh, the Zuzalo event that we did. And Valley DAO, for those who don't know, um, is a synthetic biology DAO. And, and so that would be perfect, right? That's where I would contribute to the DAO because they're doing a high value nutritious protein scale up product in, in, in Africa where there's malnutrition, that would be a great, uh, great product. I will suggest this to, uh, to Valley Dow. And that's again, why these novel structures, I think are really, are really good for public good. Um, like Vida Dow as well, um, for, for, for longevity and aging. So I think that could be a good, a good argument for it or a good kind of, uh, first, uh, product that would, uh, that would resonate with people. I mean, question is, of course, it's feasible, but again, sort of that innovation is there too. I would also think of something like, um, you know, we could have something like a vegan state or something like that, where we're like, hey, what's really, what we're really missing is, you know, the synthetic meat is taking, you know, it's too slow. What is a place where we can have that much faster and where we really build around sort of the moral innovation of building like, um, synthetic foods and products. So we reduce animal cruelty radically or something like that. I guess that's already possible in existing <laughs> countries. I mean, unless, unless synthetic meat is, um, you know, unless it's hard to get synthetic meats to market fast enough. Yeah. There's another area that we could explore, which would be around carbon and the polluting industries that are already in the existing places, you know, and how could we create a, a city or a network state that is carbon negative, that could be an interesting place to go. Cause you know, we all want to do better in terms of our carbon footprint, but, um, I still have a gas car. I still burn a ton of, um, gas in my, in my heating and my air conditioning system. There aren't the incentive structures yet to, to replace these systems. I'm not sure that there's a there there, but, uh, 
but that's where my brain went, which is synthetic biology has the potential to suck out CO2 from the air and to fix it into all of these products that we've been discussing. And we should be doing more of that and we should be doing less of the sucking up oil from the ground and, and burning it. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So any other avenue in the whole space that we didn't explore yet, but that you feel is important? I think we've covered a lot. We should probably touch on the ethics of what we're doing. You, you, you began with playing God and there's been a lot of fear around generative AI and I mentioned using generative AI for protein synthesis. And I think everybody is in awe of what AI can do. And everybody is also slightly terrified of what AI could do. I think if you're not slightly terrified of where this could go, uh, I don't think you're, you're being um, fair to yourself or to humanity. So then bring that into then what could you do with biology? Um, you could produce amazing things. You could say, design me a tree that will grow into a house. You could say, design me a tomato that has, uh, you cut it open and it has, has beef steak inside of it. Um, you could design all of these amazing things using generative AI and it could say, here's the DNA, go, go, go make it. We should think about that, that new godlike power to, to, to speed up evolution and what we would do with it and whether we should have that power. Now, I think once everybody has their own network states on whatever planet they want, then, then all bets are off and, and, you know, you can, you can build whatever you want to build. Um, but, uh, we should be thinking about those kinds of issues and having those kinds of discussions now before the technology comes. Um, and I think that's important. Yeah. Uh, so how, so is, uh, synthetic biology, one of the breakout risks of dangerous AI? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Um, I think you've got to, got to be thinking about this powerful tool and what we could do with it. But I think it also comes down to what the hell is life and how did it start, which we still haven't definitively shown or, um, I think if I were to design a system to spread intelligence throughout the universe, um, a self-replicating system with a digital code, um, that can utilize the resources around it is the kind of thing that I produce. Um, and that's exactly what, what we are. Um, so I think it helps us to try to understand our place in the universe, um, why we exist, what life is. Um, I think there's a lot of philosophical debates that we can have that AI is, is allowing us to see that maybe we're nothing more than somebody else's AI program to replicate and and uh, propagate throughout the universe. All these discussions on these frontier technologies take us to very interesting places and fundamental questions about humanity, right? Exactly. Fantastic. John, I'm really looking forward to see you again in Zuzulu next week. Thank you so much for coming on the show and give our listeners an introduction to synthetic biology and making me and hopefully also our listeners very excited about all the possibilities warning us about sort of the, or talking about the misconceptions about the potential risks such as AI and playing around and toying with some of the ideas, how to remove obstacles from scaling synthetic biology even further, which we learned are less on the regulatory side, although there are some, especially when it comes to health, which is very encouraging for this to become a thriving ecosystem to, to do great things with.
So thank you so much for coming on the show. Anything else you want to point at? How can listeners find you and your work? Any shout outs that you want to give? Sure. Thank you for having me, Nicholas. I really enjoyed it. And if people want to follow up, I write a weekly newsletter on the synthetic biology industry. And you can go to synbiobeta.com to find that. And the conference, as I said, is coming up next month at the Oakland Marriott. And you can also follow me and you can follow Symbiobeta on Twitter and LinkedIn, where we post a lot of the news that's coming out from the industry. I'll make sure to post that in the show notes. Thanks so much, John, for coming up. Thanks, Nicholas. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye now. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.